for smart entrepreneurs, it is much like offshoring was. Being able to hire a developer in the Philippines in 2009 changed the way I could operate business. I think AI is the same. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Actually, we're just on a team call and we got to ship this podcast. So I invited my good friend, Jeff Picaro onto the pod. We were currently and right now talking about DC, Mexico, which is, and like just booking our flights. I haven't booked my flights yet. Should I admit that? I haven't booked my flights yet. I mean, I'm a terrible, terrible event attendee. I'm booking at the last minute. We're deciding what days we're coming in. And I thought, before we roll today's interview, that it would be cool to share some trends that we're seeing in the community right now. So maybe introduce yourself and let us know what you do. Yeah, my name is Jeff Picaro. I'm a speaker's coach. I've worked with the DC on their events for about eight years now. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is having you know operators, not like traditional keynote speakers, but people who, like the rest of us, spend their day behind a laptop running their business, um, helping them tell their stories. And in particular, you know, a lot of the cool things about these events are the conversations that are kind of below the surface that people don't necessarily want to share outside of a group of trusted colleagues and friends. So it's always exciting to get to talk to the speakers and find out kind of like what the real deal is that's uh, going on in people's businesses. Yeah, the real deal can be positive and negative. Can be like myself, my business is sliding sideways. I've We've talked about we've lost a ton of revenue. We don't think it's coming back. We're over the anger and denial phase. I forget what the next one is, but we're moving on. We've had to change some staff. We've had to change our perspective on what Q2 and Q3 are going to look like. So there's that. But then there's also the other side of it, which is like people that are crushing it and kind of don't want to say that publicly either because most people that are crushing it are sensible and don't want to say it publicly. But one of the things we're seeing, we're seeing... A lot of founders try to replace themselves in their business. That continues to be whether it's, you know, doing it with automation, with AIs, with COOs, with systems, with uh, mergers and deals. I feel like that's a really common aspect is sort of treating the businesses much more like assets instead of a job or, or an operation that you're running the day to day of. Yeah. And so I think we talked a lot over the last year and a half or so about that trend of kind of leveling up that we're seeing in the community from being a day-to-day operator to becoming a manager, exiting the day-to-day, maybe exiting the business and running into a whole host of new challenges that like what got you here won't get you there because it is a different skill set and because it is something that a lot of people haven't necessarily run into before. But as these businesses grow, it's a natural progression and um, it's not always pretty. I feel like too, there's like, there's different dimensions of growth. Like for a lot of listeners of the show, growth means mid seven figure, eight figure business. That's where we're going with this one. And for a lot of founders, it means I'm optimizing for time and location and cash flow, And that's my ambition. In fact, we do have talks about people who are sort of doing the anti-growth thing, but it's still ambitious in a way. Maybe it's more ambitious to simply build a super powerful automated cash flow or one that engages your passions too. I think that that's a 
really active conversation for a lot of founders. Not everyone's super passionate about taking over the world with their business. Yeah. And I think even the ones that are are discovering that when you hit a certain scale or when your role starts to change, you discover really quickly how much your identity is tied up or can get tied up in either your role in the business or in the business itself. So whether that means you want to go back to being a day-to-day hustler or you want to grow up to becoming an owner in some way, all of those transitions prove to be more difficult, I think, than I would expect. Because from the outside, it looks like you're getting everything that you've ever wanted. And on the inside, you're really dealing with a profound change to what your life looks like and who you are. Well, speaking of uh, profound life changes, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you in uh, Mexico City here in just a few short weeks. We actually, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, we have a website now for dynamitecircle.com. We've made it 12 years without a website. We now have a website where we can publish like this event information and sort of other elements about the community so people don't have to search like seven-year-old Reddit posts about what's happening in the DC. So check it out. If you're curious about future events, you can sign up for an all-new mailing list where we'll have some information about all the amazing founders coming down to Mexico City. So that's it for this one. Jeff, uh, let me uh, just uh, bring you behind the curtain here. I- I'm just going to introduce today's guest, who is a mutual friend of ours and someone we both admire. He's one of the most respected founders in the entrepreneurial space. I'm Rob Walling, and I do more things than I can fit into one sentence. Try us. <laughs> it's going to be a run-on sentence with M dashes and commas. I run MicroConf which is the oldest and largest community for bootstrap SaaS founders. And I run TinySeed, which is the first startup accelerator for bootstrap SaaS founders, as well as the sister podcast to this very podcast, as I call it, Startups for the Rest of Us. And Rob being Rob, he's omitted quite modestly that he's also the author of some excellent books, including Start Small, Stay Small, and a new one, which I recently read, I was just delighted about it. It's called The SaaS Playbook, Build a Multi-Million Dollar Startup Without Venture Capital. He's really put together some of the best frameworks on how to build a successful SaaS, not only from his own experience, but also from a massive database of people who are doing the same. So it's pretty impressive what Rob's achieved. Rob, you guys recently reopened applications for TinySeed. And when I talk to my friends, I'm here in Austin, everybody's in tech. And everybody has a story of people getting laid off, stock prices getting crushed. I'm just curious, what do you think is happening from a mostly bootstrapped perspective? What's happening in our niche? We're not hearing a lot about it. Yeah, that's because the macroeconomic environment matters a lot less to our types of companies than it does to a company that needs a $10 million cash injection every 18 months. In 2022, we saw some slowdown. I see 125 companies I've invested in, all almost all SaaS. There's a handful that are not, but mostly SaaS. There was a slightly higher percentage of companies that were growing a little bit slower than usual. There were no layoffs in my circles because they don't hire so far ahead. And while enterprise deals are slower to close now, because you imagine your Fortune 1000 company, or do you want to sign a $60,000 contract right now in the midst of the economic chaos? Most are kind of slow rolling that, especially you know as they're laying off or whatever. But it has definitely had an impact on fundraising. If you think about Tiny Seed, we have to raise more funds for our next venture fund in about a year-ish, I think is when we'll start. So we're hoping it clears up by then. 
But in terms of actual companies and growth, we still see it's not exactly the same as 2020, 2021, but it is certainly getting back to that. So it's affected LPs more than founders to date. Yeah, that's what I would say, including myself. Like I saw my net worth drop with crypto and stocks and whatever else. Yeah. But if you're building a cash flow, you know, a break even, mostly break even business, I mean, some of our founders rented a five, 10, 20, you know, thousand dollar deficit if they have cash in the bank. It's so easy to write that ship. Like if things got really bad, let's say the market went down 20, 30% in the next few months, heaven forbid, you can write that ship so quickly versus these massive, massive deficits that we see, you know, remember Bolt Fast? Was that the, anyways, they had a couple hundred thousand ARR and they had 600 employees. Like their burn was 10 million a year. I mean, it was just some crazy <laughs> number. It's like, that's not even a functioning company. It's like the butt of a joke. In our circles, they're the butt of the joke, right? I'm like, what are these folks doing? And look, everything works while everything's going up into the right. Everybody looks like a genius. And when the yeah. tide goes out, right, we know the expression. We see who's wearing pants. <laughs> Just for context, how many checks do you guys think you're going to write in the next quarter from this application pool? So we run applications twice a year. And in the next quarter, we will fund, I'd say between 25 and 30 companies. We have our Americas batch, which is a little larger, usually around 15. It was 17 last time. It's like North and South America, basically, because it's time zone based. So we can all get on calls synchronously. And then we have our EMEA Europe, Middle East, Africa batch. And we funded, tended to fund around 10-ish in, uh, in that cohort. What do you think will be the outcome of those 30 companies? I'm just curious, like, I know you can't predict hmm. for sure, but what's your thesis? What do you think is going to happen for these companies over the next five years? Super interesting questions, to be honest. And we had a thesis in 2018 when we started Tiny Seed. We announced it. And we had theses like, well, we're going to write these checks and it'll allow people to quit their day job and focus on their companies. And it turns out maybe 20 to 25% of our founders have not, are, have not already quit their day job. It's a super minority who haven't done yeah. it. I also thought, I mean, if you think about Tiny Seed supports, unlike most venture funds, we allow you to be like a C-corp in the US or just a it's a non-pass-through entity, right? So where, and if you're going to do that, you're going to either raise funding, you're going to sell someday. Or we support LLCs, which are pass-through entities. And venture funds don't do that. But if you're going to start a company that's cash flow positive and you just want to pull out dividends, that's what you do. Initial hypothesis, I was like, I bet it'll be like 50-50 split of people who just want to run it for a decade and pull out dividends and people who want to have a big exit. Turns out, at least in the kind of straw polls I've done, it's been like 80% who want an exit, who want like a 10, 20, $30 million exit rather than I want to be base camp. And it's led me to this kind of moniker that I say, and I don't mean it literally, but I kind of do. It's like everyone sells. Everyone sells. Like I didn't think MailChimp would ever sell and MailChimp sold. I actually didn't think Barometrics would sell. Barometrics sold. I didn't think I was going to sell Drip. Drip sold. You know, it's like everyone yeah. sells eventually. I mean, may, you know, base camp hasn't sold and they probably won't. So don't, you know, don't take me literally. But all that said, if I think of 30 companies that we've funded, I think a small percentage of them, like a very small percentage, will just shut the doors at some point. And maybe that's like two of those companies. What we found is that companies, SaaS companies, 
in the range that we fund in, which is usually 2K MRR, maybe to 40,000, 50,000 a month, they're valuable. Even if you're doing 10K a month and you're like, I just want to sell for parts, you yeah. do the math on the multiples, like 10K a month, 120K a year. If you get a 5X profit multiple, let's say most of it's profit if you run it on your own, you know, you're talking half a million dollars for that business. And so yeah. we have not had any like spectacular exits. We have had several base hits and we've had several folks who came into Tiny Seed doing a few thousand a month who are now millionaires because they sold. Again, they're not 20, $30 million exits. They were relatively modest exits by standards, but it, it changes their life. And so that's the difference. Like the VC outcome is, all right, I'm gonna have one Uber or Airbnb or Stripe. And then I'm gonna have two that maybe two or three, right? That give me like a two to five X and then everything else is just goes to zero basically. And I think our model is flipped where I think, you know, out of 30, maybe two or three shut down. And then I think a huge swath in the middle is gonna, well, I think, and then a few will kind of sell for parts, but even that is not a terrible outcome as bad as it could be. And then the huge swath in the middle, I think will have, you know, multi-million, if not decamillion dollar exits. And then there'll be one or two at the top that is a, that big. Do I think we can have a $50 million exit or a hundred million? I really do. I'm not surprised. I feel like one of the things I want to talk about is like the landscape seems to be changing quite a bit. But on the other hand, it still feels like we're in the same opportunity window. A lot of the things we talk about when it comes to like best SaaS practices are things we could have talked about when we were dreaming up our version of Basecamp in 2009. You know, yeah. I remember sketching out my productivity management app as well. It's a rite of passage, sending it off to India. Could you dig in a little deeper, like, how do the founders and opportunities showing up to tiny seed applications look different than they would have five years ago? How is the character of those companies changing? There's a couple things. I mean, there are the, the kind of macro trends that you would expect, like AI and remote work or even remote events that obviously a strong need was brought along by COVID or by new tech, and that need wasn't there five years ago. I think those ones are pretty obvious. The other thing we're seeing, and I don't know if this is just from us being around and having a stronger brand and a larger audience, but we are seeing more companies and more founders that are just better educated on things where we do an interview and it's like, I no longer have to define like these are basic SaaS metrics or dig into what a sales funnel is, what a marketing funnel is. Like we have this understanding and there's a lot of jargon that gets introduced, let's say through the Lean Startup or through your podcast or my podcast. The first time you hear it, it feels like a foreign language. And so I think in 2018, we would talk to people and I would ask the basic question, what's your revenue churn like? And they're like, what is that? I've heard churn, but like revenue, what is revenue churn? It's like, well, it's not logo churn, right? I'd have to kind of walk it through. Not everybody, but it was just a less kind of sophisticated audience. And there's always been the Silicon Valley venture education, but the nuts and bolts stuff that you talk about, that I talk about on Startups for the Rest of Us, it feels like it's permeating more. And at least the people who are coming to us are better prepared to succeed, which is great because if we fund them, amazing. They're more set up to succeed and that helps us continue to fund companies. And if we don't fund them, amazing because they're set up to succeed and it makes one more bootstrapped founder who can change their life. It feels like the individual is more powerful. Like that's a macro trend that's happening. Like each individual founder or founding team can do more now yeah. than they could five years ago. And Related to that, you're basically saying a lot of these founders aren't coming to us for the money. That's right. Because bootstrap companies and specifically software, they are so capital efficient. 
Companies like Zoom, and there was another big one, it might have been Dropbox, they went public with more cash in the bank than they had raised from venture capitalists. They were a profitable business, which is crazy to think about, right? We hear about Uber and all these, there's burn, burn, burn. Some of these SaaS specifically, it's a subscription revenue model, it's B2B, churn is low, you know, there's all these things that are in fa- net negative churn, there's all these things in favor of that. They become so capital efficient that even by the time you're at 20K a month, 30K a month, money's helpful, but it's not make or break at that point. You don't need to pay for upfront inventory. You're kind of just marketing and building a product. And to your point earlier of individuals can do more, these programming languages that allow like Rails and Python Django allow you to build stuff so much faster and offshore work that really started in early 2000s for big companies and for our types around, for me, my memory was for our work week, right? 2007, 8, 9, where really it was like, wait, I can hire a developer for $10 an hour in Eastern Europe or the Philippines. That in itself is a difference because my first developer when I was trying to build products was a friend of mine in LA who I was paying $60 an hour who wasn't that great. <laughs> she was a mid-level <laughs> dev, but I, I didn't know. I, it was 2005. What was I going to do? You hired someone you knew. There was no Upwork. You couldn't, you know, it's like I'm a Skype with a developer in Philippines instead of money. Are they going to build anything? You know, it's just the world has changed. And that is a macro trend, I think, that has been really beneficial to capital efficient companies. It's funny. I did a seminar, classic business opportunity seminar in 2012, how to make money online. And it had like 12 modules. And I pulled them down yesterday. And basically, they're all the same. Like I would add to the Twitter module, like a TikTok module and an Instagram. But like, it's interesting how much things have stayed the same. And then I look back to getting real. And it was like, now we can build on the web. And so a lot of the principles remain the same. It's just some dynamics have changed. And now everybody's talking about AI. And part of me wonders, like, some people say AI is going to destroy SaaS. Some people say, you got to do everything AI now. Some people say the world's going to end. I wonder, are we going to be like the brick and mortar businesses? Are we just going to like keep going and like doing this forever? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's going to be these AI young people that write their own four hour work week and just do different stuff. And we're going to be talking the same stuff 20 years from now, just building solid plumbing business. I mean, they really print cash, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. What's your take on AI? I think of it like the web in the early, in the early to mid nineties. I think of it like the mobile revolution in 2007, eight, when the iPhone came out, I think of it as like Web3 and crypto, well, crypto, Bitcoin, as that came out in the tw- early 20 teens. It starts off overhyped. Well, it starts off with just a few people knowing about it, but they're so excited about it. And then once it hits mainstream, it's like, really, this is not going to be anything. And you get the hype curve. And then all of them inevitably crashed, dot-com crash in 2000s. Everyone was building mobile apps 10 years ago, and there are not very many you know, people doing it now. And then, of course, Web3, we, <laughs> look at your crypto, look at your Coinbase account, talk about crashing there. So I think AI is similar. I do think we've had this incredible moment of cultural awareness. And I think it's both overhyped and underhyped, just like I think the web was, and just like I think Web Web3 and crypto and blockchain and all that. that. That's not dead. Like people, I hear people saying, is crypto even worth anything anymore? And I'm like, yeah, it's still a thing. And not just, I don't mean, just mean Bitcoin as a currency, but like the idea of a blockchain, like these have applications that will carry on. That's how I think of AI. I think if I was an employee today or I was doing low-skilled work, I would be shaking in my boots. I think for smart entrepreneurs, 
it is much like offshoring was. Being able to hire a developer in the Philippines in 2009 changed the way I could operate business. I think AI is the same. It empowers me and it enables my team already at MicroConf. I'm like starting to pay for chat GPT for people. It enables them to work faster. It's just adds fuel to our business. So I don't think it will replace it. I think it'll make it better. I had an opportunity recently to take a look under the hood of some larger venture-backed, in one case, the unicorn doing really well and noticed a, a sort of a breed of intensity there that I had heard rumored talked about that I finally saw. And I didn't really like what I was seeing. It felt like a lot of people that I might not normally hang out with all of a sudden get their chance at a piece of a billion dollars and you just see a lot of ugliness and intensity. That seems like a tough way to live. And I'm curious, that's something that we will often say. From In my case, I've said it without a ton of experience because I haven't been in those situations. What is your message for tiny seed founders on intensity, on work ethic, on obsession, especially with the prospect of 10, $50 million exits in a near-term future in an opportunity window that might be limited? What's interesting about a lot of the Silicon Valley-backed companies is that it is unicorn or bust. They need to become a billion-dollar company or they're kind of sold for parts, as crazy as that sounds, because of the valuation at which VCs invest. That's the economics. And those markets where you need to be a billion or it's a unicorn or a decacorn now, like I, that's going around. Sam Altman, former president of YC, CEO of YC, who's now runs OpenAI, has been quoted as saying like, yeah, we're, we move on from unicorns, we need decacorns, which is just staggering. I mean, there are only handfuls of markets in the entire world that are like $10 billion valuation. And most of them are winner take all. And that is not true in most bootstrap companies. Well, you're going to be the unicorn factory going forward, right? That's what's going to happen over the next five years. It can happen or, but it doesn't need to is the thing, right? How many amazing million, 10 million, $50 million email service providers are there out there? There are a lot more than you think. All they do is send emails for government agencies. You've never heard of them because you don't care. And there's one here in Minneapolis because we used to poach developers from them. And that company is doing, I think it's doing tens of millions a year in revenue and none of us have heard of it. There's obviously MailChimp, right? And there's obviously, you got ActiveCampaign and you have ConvertKit. And you know, you have these big ones we've all heard of, Drip. Is Aweber still cracking? Aweber still cracking. I mean, the power of subscriptions is amazing. But look, intensity is great. I'm an intense person, but I'm not intense like you're talking about. The Travis Kalnicks, right? The, I sacrifice people, I sacrifice relationships either to line my pocket or because my goal is to be a decacorn. And you don't need to. You, I don't know if Bezos could have built Amazon without his intensity. I don't know if Uber would have worked. I just listened to Super Pumped. I just listened to that. Pretty good yeah. book, actually. I enjoyed it because they don't glorify... I listened to the WeWork one about Adam Newman. I was pissed off the whole time because that guy's such a douche. When I listened to Travis, I'm like, he's not like me and I wouldn't condone his behavior. But also I get it. I don't know of a tiny seed company that needs to be that intense to build a million, 10 million, 20 million ARR business, which can be worth nine figures, you know? It's certainly an adaptive quality. We obviously have some entrepreneurs that just ship every day and relentlessly execute. But I don't see any of them mowing over their competitors, spying on their competitors, corporate espionage, you know, which is what like literally Uber was doing now. They were like spying on Lyft 
And they were like trying to hack their code. I mean, just crazy stuff. So that's what you get when you're going after 10 billion, I think. And I just don't think it's needed in our type of companies. Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. I'll just toss out a psychological thing. I had psychology down at the bottom here because I know Sherry's been prolific on the web and she's been really influential and that's been actually amazing. Like one of the most amazing things about entrepreneurship for me is like it's forced me to like take a harder look at my own psychology. Let's not talk about me. Let's talk about other people for a second. Like I read this book recently called The Five Types of People Who Will Ruin Your Life. Hmm. And it is essentially a, a pop psychology framework for thinking about personality disorders. This is something that I really wish I would have understood beyond anxiety, beyond depression, that there's certain people out there and some people have different estimates, five to 15% of the population that just don't think about reality the way you do for important reasons that are difficult to understand and that not many people do understand. And that's why these are can be dangerous frameworks. However, my like liberal philosophical education really prevented me from caring about this stuff until recently when I realized that the business world had put me in contact with a lot of people that were corrosive or toxic or any number of things. And it was hard for me to make that judgment without having a sense of a framework. Have you noticed that mm. the internet, social media, entrepreneurship, people selling you things, people being charismatic and interesting can lead you down negative paths if you're not wary? Yeah. And I, I believe you're talking about things like narcissism, maybe um, borderline personality disorder, sociopathy, like that kind of stuff, right? It's these negative... Psychopathy. And there's like one other key thing that in that particular book. But yes, exactly. These are things like that you can't just take a pill and get rid of because right. they're really like a cluster of behaviors that are problematic for some people, maybe not for the person who has those clusters. Maybe it works great for them. But for more of a normalized human who's cooperative and works in groups, you treat that person like you treat the cooperative people and all of a sudden you find yourself in a bad way. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So have I run into folks like that? Absolutely. Do I think an abnormally high percentage of those people wind up in power, whether it's politics, whether it's running companies, whether it's CEOs, CTOs? I think about it less as it causes them to be that way, but the reason they get there is because of what they're willing to do to other people. Corporate politicking, backstabbing. I worked at a company where we hired, this is a while ago, but we hired a CTO and he was a career CTO. We interviewed all these CTOs and someone on my team said, all of these CTOs, you know, are sociopaths. And I was like, really? And he's like, I don't quite mean it literally, but I kind of do. And the moment they get in here, they're power hungry and they're going to start playing. I was like, I don't think so. They were so nice when we talked to them. Sure enough, 
guy came in and just started, he got rid, he started backstabbing and getting rid of people that he just felt like maybe weren't quite all on his agenda. And I, and they were really good people. There were people I had hired actually, because later on I left and longer story, but I do think that like the willingness to bend the rules or care less about other humans can get you. I mean, we see it, honestly, man, we see it in politics and we see it with some of these startups. We're seeing it more in marketing too. Unfortunately, I think the Andrew Tate story is kind of instructive. And in some ways, like the fact that he was willing to tap into these like marketing messages that had deep emotions. And I noticed it Mm -hmm. only because I realized he was selling a membership website that sold how to make business online. Like that was one of his cash streams. And so he would go into character and say things that would work well on Twitter and Instagram. And now I see more of that amongst people that I know that sort of willing to cross that line and not people with bad personalities by any means. Mm. But then I wonder about that in relation to, we've always like been very like personal brand. This is actually who we are, authenticity. And it doesn't seem to be working as well as being willing to say things. The over the top. And if you think about it, Dan, we are part of a second wave of personalities because the Dan Kennedy and all those folks, Joe Polish, Perry Belcher, do you remember that? It was the early internet marketies. Super fake. And I didn't, I read Dan Kennedy stuff and I would pull the marketing messages out of it. But a bunch of his stuff in his books were like, business is here to make money. And if you have to screw people along the way, forget it. Because the number one goal is to make money. And I was like, I don't agree. Skip. But then I'd be like... You would gloat in his books about... How rich he was. Yeah. But dude is a good copywriter. I learned copywriting from him. So I learned, that's how I learned to market my stuff. So that was like the first wave, right? They were doing physical... Talk about a sales letter. Why is it called that? Because they literally mailed things to people, you know, in the 90s. Then the internet came about and the early aughts was them online trying to do stuff. And then I feel like you and me and Andrew, you, Darian, and, you know, there are other folks. Andrew Warner. Even the internet business mastery guys. It's just endless, yeah. That were kind of, but kind of came along and were maybe, I would say more ourselves. Like if you meet me in person, I, and you as well, like you're just you on the podcast, right? You're just tall. And then Derek, my co-founder, would drip 6'5". So I'm like, <laughs> but anyways, no, you know what, dude? There's always been that faction. And whether it's startup founders or internet marketers, the faction who's willing to lie and justify it to themselves. I actually have said this phrase to my kids before. It's going to sound really harsh, but it was in context, okay? But I'll talk to my 16-year-old and I'm like, look, you're saying this, but it's not true. So you're either lying to yourself or you're lying to me. Which is it? And we'll talk it through. Like, what I mean is like, you're either trying to deceive me on purpose or you're convinced of something that just isn't true. And let's dig into that because that's maybe a bigger problem, right? Is you view the world differently than the six other people who are saying this thing happened and you're the one saying it didn't, right? And I think there's some people who are adults who should have learned that lesson by now, but they are willing to let themselves be deceived because it will make them money or make them popular or make them famous, whatever it is. The reason I wrote down psychology is because you have a, a nice section about mindset in the book, which I appreciated. And thinking about the ways in which founders have to deal with their own psychology and how often that can be a big blocker. One of the things that we see with companies that we coach often when you have two founders, I need more leads, I need more customers, I need more all these things. But what they really need is an opportunity to talk to each other as adults and to create a bunch of space for that. Are there some common psychological hangups that you see with founders that prevent them from achieving the success that they desire? 
Yeah, there's a lot of them. Many of them I had (laughs) early on and I had to figure out how to get through them. I think it depends so much on, man, it depends on where you came from and how you were raised, to be honest. Like I see a lot of folks who don't have the self-confidence to just put themselves out there to build something and ship it into the world because they're scared of criticism or of failure or that it won't go well when realistically the most obvious thing that will happen or most likely thing is just no one will care. But I had that big time, big time in the early 2000s when I was trying to launch. I was so scared. I used like pseudonyms to like launch these little products that no one cared about because I didn't want it to ever reflect poorly on me. So I think that's a hang up. And it's not that you can't be cautious and you need to be diligent with your time and not take crazy risks because that's the other extreme. But I do think that being willing to make mistakes and being willing to make mistakes in public, I think is an adaptive quality to have a thicker skin to post something on Reddit and have someone disagree. Now when I'm on, if I'm on Hacker News or Reddit or anywhere and I'm in a conversation and I say something and someone is kind of rude or is just like, that's not true. I am so much less reactive to it because I'm like, I genuinely think this person doesn't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Or I, I just, I feel better. I'm more confident in my own abilities, right? So I think that's one. I also, dude, the other one, the big one we see is this, it's the opposite of having a bias towards action. Like, Anar and I keep saying, he's my co-founder with Tiny Seed. If I could just test... By the way, I recently met Anar. Arguably cooler than you. Oh, no. I, I hear that all the time. No, he is cool. It's not arguable. Let's be honest. He's so easy to hang out with. I'm like kind of awkward. I'm like, so I got to ask you about something on your recent pie. And Anar, it's just like, he's like, so man, so you live here, huh? So how's the baseball team doing? And it's like, what? How are you this personable? You understand why he does all the investor relations. Like, he is so good at just conversation. (laughs) But he and I talk about like bias towards action. Like I wish we could test for people who just do who ship really fast. Such a buzz term. I hear these Silicon Valley folks say it all the time. It's an Mm. interview question now. If you're going to go work in tech, how do I know if I'm biased towards action? Do you ship things quickly and you don't overanalyze? Do you sit and he and ha for weeks about getting these three SEO pages up? Because you're like kind of doubt, oh, I don't know if it's going to work. Well, maybe I'll go find a copywriter and then I'm going to take two weeks on Upwork to find them. Or do you sit down in an afternoon and you block off two hours and you write those things yourself and you ship it that day or the next day? Like we have founders who will literally, one will do one thing in a week and it will take the other three or four months. We don't know that. I wouldn't have funded the one that took four months. They're going to move so slowly that even if their business is successful, it's either going to take decades or they're just going to get out-actioned by their competitors. And by the time they've built a good business, the market will have moved on. Hmm. So that's what I mean is like, it's moving quickly, but also there's a shadow side to that, which is I have ADHD and I'm moving quickly and I'm shipping a hundred things, but like all of them are half-ass and none of that, there's no strategy, right? So that's, you don't want to go to that extreme. But when you know then the course of action, you don't, I would say overanalyze or analysis paralysis or whatever. It's the opposite of that. Let me ask you a founder gut question. What does, and I heard someone say it to me like this the other day, and I was like, I got to hear more. What does product market fit feel like? It feels so good. It feels so good. (laughs) Because it means, look, I've, did I find product market fit with my first book? I did. And did I find product market fit with Drip? We did. And have we found product market fit with Tiny Seed? We have. And then I have, I had a slew of other businesses that never found it. Absolutely. Right. And those were the ones that plateaued or it was just pushing the boulder up the hill for months or years. That feeling of product market fit is where it's like, 
wow, we have so much interest. It's almost like we don't have to try. You still do, because that's where you get that flywheel going. That's where I'm confused, because in your book you write, your excellent book that's not published yet. Do you have a copy? There it is. The SaaS playbook. Build a multi-million dollar startup without venture capital. Got it. Okay, the subtitle. You mention that although part of you thought, oh, you know, Drip is a, a word of mouth product. And we've talked about Drip many times on the show. Only 15 to 20% of your customers you could attribute to word of mouth. And so you said it's really dangerous to rely on word of mouth, which I felt like, oh, I got to go back to work because I don't, I rely on these things. There's a disconnect there between you don't even need to try and people are knocking down the door. And well, and at the end of the day, only 15% are coming from this force. How do I build out that demand from the early product market fit? Yeah. And let's be clear, product market fit is not a binary. As I say many times in the book, I view it as a continuum, right? You can measure it on a one to a hundred, whatever scale you want. But with that in mind, like strong product market fit, even with strong product market fit, that usually means high retention. So your churn is very low, often net negative, right? Where you're actually growing even without adding customers. So that has nothing to do with new customers. It's about everyone loves it and sticks around, right? And raves about yeah. it. And there is a word of mouth component. It also means that demo to paid or trial to paid, if I'm going to put it into numbers, those are extremely high because people try it or see it and they're like, oh my, this is, I've had this problem. This is amazing. And it's only $50. I'm absolutely, take my money, right? That's part of product market fit too, which again, has no, no bearing on how many leads you're receiving. It's that you're just closing a lot of them. So we are trial to paid, I believe went from something, we're a credit card up front. I believe went from like 25, 30% up to 60% as Drip found product, like doubled, right? So that's a huge amount. Every trial we got with a credit card up front, we closed 60% of those to customer. Mm. Like that is a very high number, right? So that is a sign of product market fit. And then lastly, yes, what you've said is like word of mouth. And word of mouth, I think of is like me telling you, you reach out to me and say, what ESP should I use? And I say, I use Drip, it's really good. Boom, we're there. You could also say that word of mouth is us, if we were to mention a product on this podcast, is that word of mouth? Or does that start to be like maybe influencer marketing? But the more influencers you get using your product, then that element builds. Bottom line, though, is to take an expression from you, which is blocking and tackling. Blocking and tackling always, I think in most businesses that are not personality driven, at least with B2B, that's what our companies do, right? This is pay-per-click ads, cold outreach, integrations and partnerships, SEO, content. That's amazing for B2B. You have built a business and so have I in a way that's more of a brand, it's a personal brand almost. Do yeah. I run ads for MicroConf? No. Do we do SEO for MicroConf? Not really. We post some blog posts. The driver for MicroConf is Startups to the Rest of Us. It's the YouTube channel. It's, it is a ton of word of mouth. Word of mouth is way higher than you know, for microconf and tiny seed than it ever was for drip. But I think maybe the, maybe that's a B2B SaaS thing where solving a problem with a tool is a different animal, right? Than selling what we sell. I ask about all this because, you know, a lot of the chapters of the book, it's like, oh, that's great. I love the pricing chapter. I love the hiring chapter. I love how you talk about where you're going to hire first and what people can do multiple rules. But I read the marketing chapter and I'm like, oh, sh how do we market products 
It's the most important thing to do. There's no clear way to do it. You can't really hire anybody to do it. The founders got to do it. You can't build it. They won't come. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like marketing is where the action is. Yep. And it is. And especially in B2B, where, again, you have a tool that solves a problem. It's like, how do you, you can find some people who need that problem solved with word of mouth. How do you increase that? And you and I have built audiences over the course of decade, more than a decade, decade and a half almost. Do you want to build a B2B SaaS company over a decade and a half? No. I mean, you may run it for that long, but you don't want to yeah. have to build an audience for a decade for it to, you know, it's like, what are the shortcuts almost? Or it's not shortcuts, but it's like, what are the faster acting marketing approaches? Because building an audience and word of mouth takes a year, three, five years. So what do I do in the meantime? Well, cold outreach, partnerships, Captera ads, you know, whatever. You're right. It's the boring. There's left brain marketing and right brain marketing. Period. Like left brain marketing is PPC, technical SEO, Captera, whatever. Right brain marketing is more brand stuff. It's more personality. It's more content. I would say YouTube and podcasts are more right brain because it's like creative. How much would you say tiny seed companies rely on things like tools like cold outreach, essentially? I mean, it feels like there's a lot of that going on. A lot. Yeah, because think, let's you build a SaaS for interior designers and architects. How many people you think you're going to get to sign up for that tool with a podcast? In yeah. a, even in a decade, you cannot build a business on that. Now, content and SEO, probably, there's probably an avenue there in most spaces. Cold outreach? Yeah. There's a lot more integrations and partnerships, you know, with a tool that already serves them. That makes more sense. Or think about building a tool even, I won't say even worse, but like even more difficult. You build a tool that sells for 100 grand a year and it is aimed at construction firms, big construction companies. You and I have it easy. <laughs> I get on a microphone and I talk for 30 minutes a week, you know, and I record a YouTube video. I enjoy that. Selling six-figure deals to construction firms is not that. It is so much more this engineered interactions. It's going to live events. It's sponsoring events at in-person construction conferences, which you and I would not have fun at. I've attended some of them. And it's glad-handing and yeah. having steak dinners, right? And so it's like, that's not all tiny seed companies, but that is a, again, B2B SaaS is, they are more kind of boring businesses than I think a lot of people think. Before we part, I'm curious, maybe there's a lot of people there on their first stair step. They have a, a meaningful agency, they have cash flow, maybe they have a product out there in the marketplace, but they're thinking of going to that next step and building recurring revenue through a SaaS. What are some ways we might think about that in 2023? What are some ways you're seeing people have success moving from a one-channel business into SaaS as a non-technical person? There's more avenues today than there have been. One avenue, of course, is through productized services because a productized service where it's not consulting, right? It's just totally productized packages. Everything's the same as a SaaS, except for you don't have to write software. You just have to manage people, right? So Craig with Castos, right? He built what's now Castos Productions, which is all editing and producing. I've seen folks do like a split testing productized service and then they wind up building a SaaS on that. They build their own split testing SaaS. So that's one way that I think is super interesting and applicable to your audience. And then the other one that I think is most common is this building in, other, in marketplaces. Like you build a Shopify app, you build that Heroku app. And even like today, I was just interviewing Tiny Seed Applicant and they have a, you know, obviously keeping it anonymous, but they have an app that launched five months ago 
and it's doing $13,000 a month in the Shopify app store. It caught a wave or it's a newer app or new, newer tech that it's um, serving. But that's a really interesting way to kind of get started because you don't then have to do all the grinding, all the marketing that I just said, content, SEO, where your eyes rolled over, Captera, integrations, partnerships, in-person events. You don't have to do that if you join an app marketplace. Now, there's two sides to that because you have platform risk and it'll plateau and blah, blah, blah. But do you care if you get to 10, You have 20? your insurance policy of the current cash flow business, which is a yep. bit different than someone that's a technologist, say, trying to build something and then market it. That's right. And that's a great way to dip your toe in. If it works, great. If it doesn't, you try again. And once you get one or two of those, you start to learn like, oh, this stuff isn't that hard. Like SaaS is a little more complicated than this, but it's not exponentially more complicated. It's not as different as going from agency to SaaS, which I tried to do. It's, that's a huge learning curve. Rob Walling, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for coming by the pod. Thanks so much for having me, man. It's always great to talk to you. Big shout out to my man, Rob Walling, and to the assist from Jeff Picaro at the top. We're looking forward to seeing those of you who will join us down in Mexico City in just a few weeks. You can catch up with Rob at tinyseed.com, michaelcomp.com, and also he's a, a fantastic follow on Twitter, at Rob Walling. Check out his latest book, which is amazing. It's called The SaaS Playbook. You can find information about that in the show notes. It's always a pleasure to have Rob. That's it for this week. I got to go book those plane tickets. We'll see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.